Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, part two of Magic and Mormonism. This is the second part in a series of podcasts I am doing looking at how a knowledge of certain rudimentary aspects of stage magic can help inform our understanding of events in early church history. I've already mentioned a number of examples of this in part one of this series. I want to elaborate right now on something I did say in part one of this series. It had to do with my theory that Joseph Smith may have intentionally placed focus on his seer stone so that his audience would place their attention on the stone and not think about the hat in which Joseph Smith placed the stone in order to dictate the text of the Book of Mormon. I suggested that perhaps the gimmick involved had nothing to do with the rock and everything to do with the hat. I further suggested that Joseph Smith, by some means or contrivance, placed notes written on pieces of paper prepared beforehand in the bottom of the hat, and this is what he was going off of during the process of dictation. I am not suggesting that this was the entire text of the Book of Mormon, but this was merely an outline of main points that Joseph Smith wanted to cover. In fact, it's very similar to the way that Bill Reel prepares for his podcasts. I'm the kind of person who typically makes a lot of notes, pages and pages of notes in order to prepare for a podcast. And I was stunned to find out early on that Bill Reel does his podcasts in a very different way. All that Bill Reel does is he takes a piece of scrap paper sometimes, jots down a few ideas, and he uses that in order to produce a one-hour-long podcast. He may just have three or four ideas briefly jotted down and everything else he fills in through the fecundity of his own mind. So what I am proposing as a possible means of the translation process is that Joseph Smith was doing something very similar to what Bill Reel does today in producing podcasts, is that Joseph Smith had a small piece of paper or two on which he had placed brief notes, put the notes in the bottom of the hat, placed his face over the hat, and thereby was able to see the notes and use the notes to structure his narrative session. So even though this idea is different from what many people have thought historically regarding Joseph Smith's translation of the Book of Mormon, it is not beyond the realm of possibility. In fact, Bill Reel does something very similar to that today in producing his podcasts. When I first came out with that podcast a year or so ago titled Magic and the Book of Mormon, in which I first proposed this translation hypothesis, it wasn't long after it came out that I was contacted by Brian Hauglid. Brian Hauglid had just read a newly released book by William Davis titled Visions in a Seer Stone. That book came out in 2020. And Brian was very excited because he wanted me to read this book because he felt that it fell completely in line with what I was proposing regarding these notes in the bottom of the hat. I did order the book. I did read it. I wanted to do a podcast about the contents of the book, but never got around to it. So without doing a thorough book review, I do want to touch on some of the main points that William L. Davis, a PhD from UCLA in theater and performance studies, explores in his book, Visions in a Seer Stone. And in order to do that, I'm going to go to Fair Mormon, because believe it or not, there have been no less than three papers written by church apologists 
trying to counter this theory by William Davis. Now, by the way, the interesting thing about William Davis's book is that he talks about these outlines being used by preachers, particularly Methodist preachers in Joseph Smith's day, as one means of creating a full-blown sermon. In fact, this is what he called part of the sermon culture of Joseph Smith's day. He gives three different ways that people could produce sermons. One, of course, is by writing every single word down and then reading it from the pulpit. A second way is by writing the main points of the sermon down, what we might call outline form, what they would call laying down heads. That was their term for it in Joseph Smith's day. Laying down heads meant writing down the main points of a sermon on a small piece of paper and then going off of that outline in order to preach a sermon of some length, perhaps an hour, perhaps even two hours. And a third method would be for the person giving the sermon to memorize the outline itself and therefore be able to apparently extemporaneously produce a sermon of some length. But really, the person giving the sermon is not producing it extemporaneously, but is going off of the memorized outline in the same way that a different person might go off a written outline. It's just that in the first case, the outline is memorized. In the second case, the outline is not. Going off the Fair Mormon article, which summarizes William Davis's exploration of the composition technique known as laying down heads, the Fair Mormon article states, The process of laying down heads, the process involves coming up with a basic list of points, perhaps on a paper or in his or her memory, that a person would like to address within a given sermon. Then, throughout the course of his or her sermon, the preacher extemporaneously connects those heads into the most coherent and powerful homily possible. Davis alleges that Joseph Smith came up with such heads prior to the dictation of the Book of Mormon, and then at the time of alleged creation of the book during translation, interlaced them with his own extemporaneous creation of text that we today have as the Book of Mormon. As he writes in the introduction, now they're going to quote from Davis's introduction, which I will read a couple of paragraphs of so you can get a fuller idea of what it is he's talking about. The focus of this study is the oral performance techniques that Smith, that's Joseph Smith, of course, that Smith used to dictate the Book of Mormon with specific attention to the methods of preaching in Smith's contemporary sermon culture. That's another expression he uses throughout the book is the sermon culture of Joseph Smith's day. Going on, thus, the central issues revolve around the methods of oral composition rather than narrative content. As such, this study will only address matters of content, the stories, the messages, and the theology of the Book of Mormon when they illuminate techniques of oral production. So what Davis does is he looks at the Book of Mormon and finds in it areas that illuminate the techniques used by Joseph Smith according to his theory of oral production. Abundant evidence throughout the work indicates that Smith made use of several techniques that facilitated the process of oral composition, including such methods as the semi-extemporaneous amplification of skeletal narrative outlines. That's talking about the laying down of heads, the skeletal narrative outlines, and there would be a semi-extemporaneous amplification of those outlines. In addition to that, the use of formulaic language in biblical and pseudo-biblical registers, rhetorical devices common in oral traditions, and various forms of repetition, 
for example, recycled narrative patterns. Among other traditional compositional strategies, viewing the Book of Mormon within the context of 19th century oratorical training and techniques, therefore, offers a performance-based approach to understanding the text. Because this is so important, I'm going to go on and read a couple of more paragraphs. Once again, just from the introduction, if you are interested in more detail regarding this subject, I encourage you to get this book by William Davis titled Visions in a Seer Stone and read it yourself. Going on in the introduction, though, in the early 19th century, children and young adults encountered many of these techniques, either by conscious study or direct exposure, through a variety of social venues domestic worship and daily family Bible reading, domestic education, Sunday schools, church attendance, revivals, introductory composition lessons in common schools, and a variety of voluntary societies for self-improvement, such as juvenile literary and debate societies. So in other words, these ideas were everywhere in Joseph Smith's day, and the opportunities for Joseph Smith being exposed to this kind of sermon culture were many and varied indeed. In fact, it's hard to believe that Joseph Smith would not have been exposed to this type of sermon culture and this type of practice of creating sermons through the laying down of heads. He goes on, Such skills were further reinforced within a culture that relied heavily on various forms of oral performance in social interactions. This is like folk tales or storytelling including household fireside storytelling practices, yes, he mentions that, public orations at civic events, classroom recitation exercises, school exhibitions, exhortations, and sermons in churches, and camp meeting revivals. So yes, it is basically everywhere. Within this kaleidoscope of oral performances, Smith's exposure to the sermon cultures within his contemporary evangelical churches offers particularly important and relevant insights. Smith actively participated, this is important, Smith actively participated as a lay exhorter among the Methodists near his home in the Palmyra, Manchester region of western New York, and he frequently attended the church services and revival meetings of several denominations in his surrounding area, including Baptists, Methodists, and Presbyterians. We have that from the first vision account in the history of the church. I added that last part. But really important here, I think, is that Smith was not only exposed to this type of culture, but that he actively participated as a lay exhorter among the Methodists near his home. For young adults like Smith, who aspired to exhort and preach, exposure to the informal training among such evangelical groups involved the instruction in and regular practice of a robust set of oral performance techniques that figured prominently in the ambitious development of semi-extemporaneous oratorical skills. In his book, Davis gives examples of Joseph Smith actually using the method of laying down heads in giving sermons. And he identifies several such examples within the Book of Mormon as well. In fact, in one of the most intriguing observations that Davis makes in his book, he identifies a passage in the Book of Mormon that seems to be talking about this very same practice of laying down heads. And this is from Jacob chapter 1, where Jacob is talking about the instructions he got from his brother Nephi regarding the manner in which he should keep the record of the people once the plates had been passed to him. 
Chapter 1, verse 1 says, Nephi gave me Jacob a commandment concerning the small plates upon which these things are engraven. And he gave me Jacob a commandment that I should write upon these plates a few of the things which I considered to be most precious. For he said that the history of his people should be engraven upon his other plates, and that I should preserve these plates and hand them down unto my seed from generation to generation. And now we get to verse 4, which has the passage that I've been leading up to. The passage that seems to mention laying down heads as a technique Jacob learned from his brother Nephi, but which was also manifestly part of the sermon culture of Joseph Smith's day. This is it in Jacob chapter 1 verse 4, continuing the instruction Jacob says he got from his brother Nephi. And if there were preaching, which was sacred, or revelation, which was great, or prophesying, that I should engraven the heads of them upon these plates and touch upon them as much as it were possible for Christ's sake and for the sake of our people. So in this one verse in the Book of Mormon, Davis sees a possible mention of this very technique of Joseph Smith's sermon culture showing up as a technique in the Book of Mormon. Once again, Jacob 1, 4, and if there were preaching which was sacred or revelation which was great or prophesying, that I should engraven the heads of them upon these plates and touch upon them as much as it were possible. So if Joseph Smith were aware of the practice within the sermon culture of his day as a Methodist exhorter, which he himself was at a young age, of this practice of laying down heads and then using them in order to semi-extemporaneously create an entire sermon, it is not too great a stretch to conceive that Joseph Smith used the same process in dictating the Book of Mormon. And as Davis shows in his book, this technique of laying down heads was not only used in the sermon culture of Joseph Smith's day, and indeed there are a great many sermons that appear within the pages of the Book of Mormon, but was also used for different kinds of productions, including completely non-religious speeches. And so the technique of laying down heads, which was used to create sermons, could also be used to create material that was not religious, which would take into account the historical component of the Book of Mormon. It's a fascinating book. It falls directly into line with my proposed theory, and I am grateful to Brian Hauglid for pointing it out to me and recommending that I read it. Once again, that book is Visions in a Seer Stone. It is written by William L. Davis, and it is creating such a stir within apologetic circles that three responses, three responses have now been written in order to show that that's not how Joseph Smith produced the Book of Mormon. And yet, I do consider it an intriguing possibility. The next thing I want to talk about is the idea of the God of the gaps. Now that is a term that I did not know back in my early 20s. But the basic idea behind the God of the gaps is that anything that we cannot explain currently with scientific understanding must be explained by the miraculous intervention of God. And that as science fills in those gaps in the onward progress of knowledge, God gets forced out of the gaps that we come to understand, but remains in those gaps that we do not yet understand. That's the idea of the God of the gaps. As I say, I was not aware of this term back in the early 20s, right after I returned from my mission. But I did have an experience where the concept was illustrated to me vividly 
in real time. I was at a special fireside in Austin, Texas. And when I say special, I mean we had a traveling speaker. His name, I believe, was Lynn Bryson. And he drove from stake center to stake center in a dilapidated Winnebago. And he would make presentations where he would sing songs, he would sell tapes, he would tell stories. He was a very engaging speaker. But without fail, the most interesting part of his presentation was where he talked about backmasking and played examples of backmasking. Now, for those of you who don't know what backmasking is, backmasking is the idea of recording a song, which would have been primarily on vinyl records back then. But you record a song and use words that played forward have one meaning, but if you, for whatever reason, should play them backwards, they have a very different meaning. And there is a message there that you can understand, at least if you try hard enough. And sometimes if someone tells you what it says in advance, then maybe you can make it out when you listen to it. But often these messages played backwards are satanic and evil in nature. And one of the examples I remember him playing was Stairway to Heaven. And he played it forward. And of course, this was one of the most popular songs to play at church dances. And it would always be the last song because it was a slow song and it was long. And that's what we wanted for the last song at church dances. But then he would play it backward and we could hear the words, at least with a little help from him, we could hear the words something like this. Here's to my sweet Satan, the one little power there whose power is Satan. Well, that's a, that's a rough attempt to portray what it sounded like. And if you listened really closely, you could hear that what was being said was, Here's to my sweet Satan, the one little path is there whose power is Satan. Well, I was enwrapped as well as was the rest of the audience consisting primarily of young adults such as myself. I remember a friend of mine was so impressed with what it was that Lynn Bryson had to say about backmasking that she and her brother went directly home and destroyed all of their LPs that were not church produced. I remember thinking at the time that Lynn Bryson was making his presentation, even though I was totally buying whatever he was selling, I still remember thinking, number one, did the rock bands who created these songs and recorded them really know that if they were played backward at some place in the recording, it would actually say what it is that the song appeared to say when it was played backward. Put another way, we all do a great deal of talking, some more than others, and yes, I'm looking at me when I say that. But surely with all the words that any of us speaks in the course of a day, a week, a month, a lifetime, there must be times when we say things that if recorded and played backward would sound kind of unusual. And that would not be because we're trying to say something unusual, but simply because of random patterns in the English language. And I wondered if maybe the same kind of thing was going on with these rock songs that were being played backward. In other words, the back masking. Is this something that was really intended by the artists, or is it just something that is happening at random? And indeed, the backward messages seem somewhat random. I mean, I get the part about here's to my sweet Satan, but what is the message in the one little path is there whose power is Satan? It almost seems like somebody is straining to find meaning in the back masking. And out of the hundreds and even thousands and thousands of hours of recorded rock songs over the history of rock and roll, would it not make sense, statistically speaking, that on a relatively few occasions there might be something that, when played backward, sounded like a hidden message? And along with this thought came another thought, which is, 
What is really the problem here? If you cannot hear the message unless it's played backward, and nobody that I know, except for Glenn Bryson, who's making a presentation of it, none of my friends have ever played a song backward. I've never played a song backward. It's not something that's really popular, at least among my group of acquaintances. If you never play the song backward in order to hear the secret message, what really is the harm that's being done? Well, I think these thoughts crossed my mind, but not very deeply, because I, along with my friends, was swept away with the secret knowledge that was being imparted of the backmasking and how evil the entire rock and roll industry must be in order to place such wicked messages in their songs in such a secret and subversive manner. Well, at the end of the presentation, which was being done in the Stakes Center in Austin, Texas, there was an opportunity for people to go up and ask questions of Lynn Bryson. He was not still at the microphone. The presentation was over. The microphone had been turned off, and he's simply standing up there on the podium, and different people are lining up in order to ask him questions individually. I had a burning question that I wanted to ask him because he seemed to be in the know as far as backmasking and all this Satanism in rock and roll goes. And though I can't remember the question that I wanted to ask him, I know that I had worked my way up until I was second in line to ask him my question. And the story here doesn't have to do with my question. It has to do with the question of the person who was immediately in front of me and talking to Lynn Bryson. Now, you may be wondering why it is that I've been telling you this story in the context of a podcast about magic and Mormonism, because there really hasn't been any magic talked about yet, but here it comes. Because Lynn Bryson is talking to the person directly in front of me about an experience that he had with a magician. And so, although he was not talking directly to me, but instead talking to the person in front of me in line, my ears perked up. And the story that Lynn Bryson told was that Lynn had been in Las Vegas attending a magic show, and the magician was performing the trick where he makes a silk handkerchief apparently come to life and begin dancing around. The thing that made the trick more amazing is that the silk was dancing around under a bell jar. In other words, the immediate thought that people have as to how this trick is done is that it's being accomplished by invisible threads that are making the silk dance around. And of course, there may or may not be some truth to that idea. But what magicians frequently do is they employ certain props or perform a trick in such a way as to try and make the audience think that the obvious explanation cannot be what is going on here. And so the silks dance around, but they don't dance around out on the stage. They may at the beginning of the trick, but then the magician puts the silks under a bell jar, as if to make it impossible for invisible strings to be used. And yet the silks keep on dancing. So it's a great trick. I don't know how to do the trick, but I've seen it a number of times, and I think it's a wonderful magic trick. Well, Lynn Bryson is talking about seeing this magic trick performed at a magic show in Las Vegas. And Lynn Bryson is saying that he went up after the show to talk to the magician and accost him about this particular magic trick because Lynn Bryson had no idea as to how the magician performed this trick. And therefore, Lynn Bryson concluded that it must be performed by supernatural means. What he said to the person in front of me was that Lynn Bryson had confronted the magician and told the magician, I know how you do that trick. And the magician, of course, having heard this a million times before, what magician hasn't, says, oh, really, how? And Lynn Bryson tells him, demons. And the magician laughs and says, no, no, uh, I don't perform it by demons. And Lynn Bryson doubles down and he says, oh, no, that's exactly how you perform this trick, demons. 
And it wasn't until Lynn Bryson doubled down on the demons theory that I realized he wasn't kidding. He actually thought that this magician performed a well-known trick by means of demonic power. And meanwhile, I'm second in line thinking in my head, well, I don't know how the trick is performed, but I am pretty darn sure it's not performed by demons. And it was at this point that I realized the image I had created in my mind of Lynn Bryson being an expert on all things supernatural, evil, and satanic evaporated. And I lost interest in asking him the question that was on my mind. And while the person in front of me was still talking to him, I backed away slowly and unobtrusively left the building. Because I realized that whatever it was my question was, I wasn't interested anymore in hearing what Lynn Bryson's answer would be. But I introduced this story in talking about the God of the Gaps. And as I say, though I was not familiar with that term at this time in the early 1980s, which would have been my early 20s, what I had just witnessed was a classic example of that phenomenon. Here's Lynn Bryson, who lives in a world that's haunted by demons. Indeed, he lives in a demon-haunted world. And therefore, anything that he cannot explain must be caused by demons. I suppose if it's a good thing, it's caused by angels and God, but this was not a good thing. This is just a magic show for crying out loud. And I quickly realized that what Lynn Bryson was effectively saying was that any magician who could perform a magic trick that Lynn Bryson could not figure out must be doing it by demonic power. So there's that God of the gaps, or perhaps devil of the gaps in this case. Anything that a person cannot understand is ascribed to supernatural influence. And that is God of the Gaps in a nutshell. It also strikes me while preparing for this podcast that a very similar thing is going on with the argument regarding the translation or dictation of the Book of Mormon by Joseph Smith. It is a remarkable feat. In some ways, it may even be considered to be on parallel with a magic trick. And as I have suggested, some principles of magic may have been employed by Joseph Smith in pulling it off. But it seems that one of the main apologetic approaches to this issue of the Book of Mormon translation is to say, if you cannot explain how it's done, then it must be God. And that is the God of the gaps fallacy in a nutshell. So much so is this the case that any time a scholar proposes a method by which Joseph Smith might have accomplished the Book of Mormon translation, such as William Davis's book, Visions in a Seerstone, the response of the apologists is to say, no, it was not done that way. It could not have been done that way. It must remain a mystery as to how it was done so that the apologists can then use the God of the Gaps fallacy in order to ascribe the translation to divine means. Now I want to tell you a story about an incredible card trick that I did at a bowling alley about 30 years ago. It's the most amazing card trick I've ever done in my life. And the story of this trick also helps illustrate some aspects of Mormonism. So let me tell you the story. At the time, I worked at the prosecuting attorney's office and we were having some kind of an event, some kind of a gathering. It was at a bowling alley. And I remember there were a lot of people there. We were having a really good time that night. And for whatever reason, a deck of cards was present and I started doing card tricks for the wife of a member of the Department of Corrections and her name was Karen Sue. Now, Karen Sue was a tough nut. She's one of these people who always wants to say, I know how you did the trick. And when you're doing magic as a magician, the entire world is divided up into two kinds 
of audience members, those who want to enjoy the magic trick as simple entertainment, and those who see a magic trick as a challenge to their intellect. And therefore, they have to say they know how it's done, and they have to try and figure out how it's done. And frankly, Karen Sue was a pretty sharp cookie, and she was figuring out how I was doing my card tricks. And this I took as a personal challenge to fool her. Well, I had gone through my top tier card tricks with her. She had figured out how they were done, and I was getting a little flustered. So I don't have any better tricks, so I have to go to my second tier card tricks, and she's figuring those out too. Finally, I go to a third tier card trick, which I had never performed before, and I had just read about recently in a book of card tricks. And it's really not a very good trick. That's why I'd never performed it before. But I'm running out of material now, and I've got to have something to fool her. The idea behind the trick is that you shuffle a deck of cards, you have the spectator think of a card, and then you make a guess as to what the card is. Now, that guess is not supposed to be correct. In fact, it's almost certainly not going to be correct. But what you do is you make the guess, The spectator says, no, that's not it. And you use that as a pretext for going through the shuffle deck face up to find that card that you guessed, which was wrong, find out its location in the deck, do something clever, and then you're set up to continue the trick and perform a minor miracle. Well, as I say, it's not a very good trick, but I started out that trick with Karen Sue, and I came up with a card, and I think it was the Queen of Hearts, and I said, think of a card. So she says, okay, I'm thinking of a card, and I said, is it the Queen of Hearts? And her eyes bugged out, her jaw dropped, and she said, yes, it is. (laughs) I had actually managed to guess at complete random the card that she was thinking of. So at that point, I knew it wasn't going to get any better than that. I closed up shop. I said, that's all the magic for tonight because that is pure magic. It doesn't get any better than this. Now, you might think, of course, that the odds of this happening are one in a million. Well, the odds are definitely against it happening, but the odds aren't one in a million. The odds are more like one in 52. But that is the trick that Karen Sue will remember As an audience member, she's not going to remember all the times that I did tricks that she could figure out. She's going to remember that last trick that was impossible for me to do by any magical means other than actually reading her mind or making a lucky guess. That's the trick I will remember too, by the way. And I've remembered it after 30 years and that's how I'm able to recount it to you on this podcast. But what does this have to do with Mormonism? Well, basically the idea is that Over the course of a magic career, and I would hardly call it a career, I just did tricks every now and then as an amateur, but over the course of an amateur career doing tricks now and then, every once in a while, you're going to make a lucky guess just by statistics. The odds are that if you make enough predictions, you will get some right. And if we look at the Book of Mormon as a text of over 500 pages, which has a lot of things in it relating to the ancient Americas, It gets many things wrong. There are a host of anachronisms in the Book of Mormon about metals, about animals that are said to exist anciently in America that did not exist anciently in America. It is as if Joseph Smith looked around at his environment in early 19th century New York, saw the animals that existed, and thought that they had always existed in America without being aware of the fact that they were much more recent additions to America from Europe and they had not been here back in Book of Mormon times. 
So those are all the guesses that he gets wrong. And yet every now and again, the Book of Mormon seems to get something right. And just as Karen Sue focused on the one thing that I got right at the very end of my presentation that night at the bowling alley and promptly forgot about all the tricks that I had done that she had figured out, even so apologists when looking at a text like the Book of Mormon or sometimes the Book of Abraham will point at the one or two things that it appears they got right as evidence that the Book of Mormon was produced by supernatural means while completely ignoring or at least not taking into account all the many things that the Book of Mormon gets wrong. When we're talking about statistics, this reminds me of the story of the student in high school or college who was actually trying to flunk out of a class. I can't remember the background of the story as to why the student would want to be flunking out of a class, but let's just take it for granted the student wants to flunk out of the class, and the teacher thinks this student is smarter than the student is pretending to be. So the teacher gives this student a test. It is a true or false test. There are a hundred questions, and the test is given to everybody in the class, including this one student he's trying to flunk out. So after the test is over, the class turns in their tests and the teacher is looking at the test, the true or false test from this one student, and realizes that this student has gotten every single answer wrong. Out of the 100 true or false questions, this student missed every one of them. So the teacher has a meeting with this student and tells the student that he has failed the test. In fact, he has completely failed the test. He has not gotten any of them right. And the student says, okay, you see, I need to be failed out of the class. And the teacher tells him, well, wait a second now, student who wants to be failed out of the class. This test is a remarkable score. And in fact, it tells us something. Because just going by the odds on a true or false test, if you don't know any of the answers, you will get 50% of them correct. Those are the statistics. Now, it might be a little bit more than 50%. It might be a little bit under 50%. But if you know absolutely none of the answers to a true or false test, the odds are you'll get about half of them right. And yet the student got none of them right. And the teacher told the student, what this shows is that you actually do know the correct answers to these questions because only a person who knew all the correct answers could get all of them wrong. And a similar thing could be said for the Book of Mormon. The fact that the Book of Mormon gets some things right, while at the same time getting a lot of things wrong, should not surprise us. That's what the odds would tell us. The thing that would surprise us is if the Book of Mormon got everything wrong. And yet generations of apologists have been quick to show us that in a number of instances such as Nahum, such as concrete, and etc., the Book of Mormon gets some things right. It is generally the practice of apologists to show only the correlations that the Book of Mormon has with ancient American history or perhaps ancient Near East history and claim this shows the Book of Mormon is true. When in fact, all the apologists are really showing is that if you have a lengthy book that makes enough claims, the odds are the book will get some things correct while at the same time getting a lot of things wrong. And that's what statistics should tell us to expect. And so ironically, this handful of things that the apologists trot out to show the Book of Mormon is true actually end up showing the Book of Mormon is not true. If the Book of Mormon got everything right, then that would be remarkable. And frankly, it's what we should expect from a text that purports to be a historical record of an ancient people. 
But by the same token, if the Book of Mormon got everything wrong, then that too would be remarkable. But for the Book of Mormon to get a few things right and a lot of things wrong is only telling us that it is what statistics lead us to expect would happen in a fictional book that was made up by an individual living in early 19th century America. Now I want to talk a little bit about the subject of believing is seeing. We all know the expression seeing is believing, but sometimes the opposite of that expression is also true. Believing can be seeing. And there are actually a certain number of magic tricks that are based upon that principle. One way in which this idea of believing is seeing works out is that it has long been recognized that when there is a radio show or a TV special about UFOs and current UFO sightings, that what tends to happen is that after the show is over, reports of UFO sightings spike. In other words, if a lot of people are listening to a person on the radio talk about how they saw flying saucers, it seems that a lot of those people themselves start seeing flying saucers. Why? Because they believe the person on the radio show and therefore they begin seeing UFOs themselves. Now, there are of course two sides to this age-old debate. One side of the debate is that it is simply the idea of another person seeing UFOs that causes the listener to suddenly start seeing UFOs, i.e. believing is seeing. The other side of the debate from the UFO aficionado perspective is that after the radio show, people are more prone to start looking for UFOs. So they're looking up in the sky more often and therefore they are going to now see what is actually there at a greater degree than they would have if they hadn't been looking up in the sky as a result of listening to this radio show. As with most propositions, both sides can be argued and frequently are. But still, this whole idea about believing is seeing was used in a magic trick that I had and that I performed in a steak magic show on New Year's Eve back in 1988. This was once again at the Steak Center in Austin, Texas, except instead of the chapel, this was on the stage. Now, many of you may have had as a young person or as a child like I did, this tiny little trick. It's called a finger guillotine. And what it is, it's a little contraption and it's got a hole there for your finger and it's got a blade that slides up and down and you can use the blade to chop a cigarette in one of the holes or a carrot. Actually, a piece of carrot works a lot better than a cigarette because the blade will go through a carrot much easier than through a cigarette. I don't know why they have a cigarette in the directions, at least the directions I had with my little finger guillotine because I'm a kid. I'm not going to be having cigarettes anyway. But my parents did and I used them in the hole and that's how I found out that cigarettes don't really work very well to be cut through by this tiny blade in the finger guillotine. Regardless, I'm getting off the subject. The idea behind the finger guillotine is that after showing the blade works to cut through things, you have a spectator put their finger through the guillotine and then... You slam the blade down into their finger and miracle of miracles, the blade does not sever their finger but still goes down and cuts through the piece of carrot in the bottom hole. This is a remarkable little trick and I loved my finger guillotine. But as I got older, I was able to get bigger tricks and I certainly needed a bigger trick for a stage show than a little finger guillotine. And what I managed to get a hold of was an arm guillotine. It is a much bigger version of the same trick. And actually, it's not even the same trick. It's a similar effect, but it's done by a different means. And without going into too much detail, instead of putting a finger through a hole, the entire arm is placed through the hole, or at least the hand is placed through the hole, and the wrist now is exposed 
to the blade. Once again, a much bigger blade. There's a little bag that is connected to the front of this arm guillotine into which the hand will fall after it is cut off the arm. Now, the hand never actually gets cut off the arm, and the hand never actually falls into the bag. What actually happens is that at the point this blade is slammed down into the hand, there is a mechanism in the arm guillotine that slams the hand down quickly as if it were being cut off by the guillotine. There's an old saying that the hand is quicker than the eye. Well, one of the first things you learn as a magician is that the old saying is not true. The hand is not quicker than the eye, and neither is the arm guillotine. Because if you simply performed the effect for an audience, the odds are that the audience would see that what is happening is not the hand being cut off and falling into a basket beneath it, but instead the hand is simply being moved down very rapidly into the bag. And the blade appears to have cut it off when actually it has not. So the reason I'm describing this trick to you is because the entire effect and it's a wonderful effect, by the way, is based upon the audience believing that what they're going to see is the hand being cut off and falling into the bag. And it is largely, and perhaps almost exclusively, because the audience believes that's what they're going to see, that that is what the audience ends up seeing. So how do I make sure that the audience is going to believe that's what they're going to see? Well, because I repeat it at least three times before actually performing the trick. And I do it as part of a comedic buildup to the actual effect. And I had a great person from the audience come up and agree to help me with this. This was the wife of the stake president, Sister Townsend. She was a seminary teacher. She was bubbly. She had a lot of personality. She was very well liked by everyone. And she was a total ham on the stage. So it worked out great. And after getting her up there and then having her place her hand into the hole with the blade above it and ready to slam down on that wrist and cut that hand off, I announced to the audience that at the count of three, I am going to slide the blade down as hard as I can and the audience will see her hand visibly be cut off and fall into the basket. Now that's one time I've told them what they're going to see, but that's not enough for my purposes. I want to say it two more times. So without going into the entire routine, what happens is that three separate times I tell the audience that on the count of three, I am going to slide this blade down as hard as I can and the audience will see Sister Townsend's hand visibly be cut off and fall into the basket. I don't say it once, I say it three times, and I kind of make a joke out of it, but the humor is incidental to what it is I'm really doing psychologically. What I'm doing psychologically is I am implanting into the audience's mind what it is they are going to see so that when I actually perform the effect, that is what the audience ends up seeing. And that is because in some situations, not every situation, it's certainly a limited group of situations where something that you see could be interpreted naturally or miraculously. But in those situations, like with the arm guillotine, if you tell the audience what it is they're going to see, the odds are they are going to see what it is you tell them they're going to see, which is miraculous, instead of seeing what it is that their eyes are actually registering, which is not miraculous. So I mentioned about radio shows about UFOs and how after radio shows like that, UFO sightings tend to spike. Well, that's because believing is seeing. And people are going to see things that they believe they're going to see 
especially when seeing such things, gives them a certain amount of cachet in the community. So people are listening to someone recount a UFO sighting on a radio show. The person on the radio show therefore has a certain amount of cachet because he or she is on the radio talking about their UFO sighting. So people who listen to that and see that as the speaker having some sort of cachet because of their UFO sighting is going to be more prone to see a UFO themselves because then it gives them that kind of cachet as well. And here's the secret now. Leaving UFO sightings and going to religious sightings or religious experiences. A religious experience is almost always going to give the person who sees or experiences that religious experience cachet within that religious community. Seeing divine things almost always gives you cachet within your community. And if you see the right kind of divine things, i.e. divine things that support the beliefs of your religious community, then your stock is going to rise within that religious community. So talking about Mormonism specifically, if you see something or experience something that is supernatural and divine and that supports the claims of Mormonism, then you are going to get automatic cachet within that community and you will be looked up to by others who have not had similar experiences. And in fact, the people who listen to you relate your experience may themselves have a similar experience as they seek to have the cachet that you have through relating your spiritual experience. And thus, spiritual experiences can proliferate within a religious organization that puts cachet on having that experience itself. So if there is a meeting in early church history, which there were, at which Joseph Smith or another leader said that angels are present in the meeting and that some of you will see angels, which I believe happened at least once during the dedication of the Kirtland Temple in the 1830s, once a person in a position of authority, such as Joseph Smith, says that angels are present and some of you will see angels and I see angels, what you are guaranteeing is that at least some of the people in the audience are themselves also going to see angels. Not all of them, but perhaps a substantial plurality of people present will see angels. And maybe they're seeing angels because they're actually seeing divine beings present in the room. Or maybe, just maybe, they're seeing angels in order to obtain the same kind of cachet as held by Joseph Smith when he says he sees angels. Now, in this example, we cannot get inside the heads of the people who claim they saw angels and make a determination as to whether they really did see angels or whether they were simply believing they saw angels in order to get cachet, in order to be thought well of by other members of the group. But we actually have an instance in church history where we can prove that the person who claimed to see something miraculous did not see it. I know this sounds remarkable. I mean, how can you get into the head of somebody who's claiming to see something miraculous and prove that no, they didn't see anything miraculous? Well, the example I'm thinking of is Orson Hyde. And the miracle I'm thinking of is the transfiguration of Brigham Young into Joseph Smith at the August 8, 1844 meeting at which Brigham Young argued that the apostles should be the next leaders of the church after the death of Joseph Smith. Now, nobody who was present for that event made a contemporaneously recorded account of seeing anything unusual about Brigham Young's appearance or hearing anything unusual about Brigham Young's voice. But a number of years later, Orson Hyde, one of the apostles, claimed 
that when he saw Brigham Young speak and heard him speak on August 8, 1844, that Brigham Young's countenance was transfigured into the countenance of Joseph Smith. And it was not Brigham Young's voice that Orson Hyde heard, but it was the voice of Joseph Smith. And he bore very strong testimony to that effect in a general conference to the saints assembled in Salt Lake City. The only problem with that account is that according to historical documents, Orson Hyde was not even in Nauvoo on August 8, 1844. In fact, Orson Hyde would not arrive there until a few days later. So what I am doing is I am using this instance as an example of showing how it is that a person can see something miraculous that did not happen. If Orson Hyde had been present in Nauvoo and claimed to have seen what he saw and heard what he heard, there would be no independent basis of determining whether it was that he actually saw it or not. But because he was not even present in Nauvoo, what we have here is a classic illustration of a person who saw something miraculous and heard something miraculous that did not happen. And we know it did not happen because he wasn't present to see it. I think the temptation with this example is to see Orson Hyde as intentionally fabricating the story. That when he told the story, he knew it wasn't true. He was just making it up in order to solidify Brigham Young's claims to leadership in the church. And by extension, solidify Orson Hyde's own claims to leadership in the church since he was one of the apostles as well. And certainly that might be the case. But what I think is more interesting is to look at this from the point of view that Orson Hyde was not intentionally fabricating, but that he was actually relating something that he believed that he had seen and heard. And if he really did believe that he had seen and heard the transfiguration of Brigham Young on August 8, 1844, then we can prove that he did not see what he thought he saw. And this becomes a beautiful illustration of the concept that believing is seeing. All right, that is probably going to be enough for today's episode of part two of Magic and Mormonism. It looks like this is going to be a three-part episode because I still have some very important insights yet to explore about how principles of stage magic illuminate aspects of Mormonism and church history. I want to thank all of my listeners who have donated to Radio Free Mormon. And I want to encourage all of you who have not yet donated to go to RadioFreeMormon.org right now, click on the donate button, and make a monthly recurring donation. $5 a month, $10 a month, $20 a month, whatever you can afford. Your contributions will keep Radio Free Mormon broadcasting behind enemy lines. And now for the closing song. At the end of the first episode, I played a song called Magic to Do from the Broadway musical Pippin. The song I'm going to close with today is from the same musical, and it is one of my very favorite songs from that musical. And one of the reasons it's my favorite song is because it illustrates beautifully what it is like to be going through a faith crisis. We thought we had everything figured out. We had our worldview set. We had our cosmic view set. We knew what was true and we knew what was not. And then we start learning things and finding out uncomfortable truths that turn everything on its head. We lose our sense of orientation, our sense of direction. We are all at sea and don't know what to do. And the title character in Pippin is going through a similar kind of situation. But fortunately, Pippin has a guide played by Ben Vereen who helps him along the way. 
And at this point in the show, Ben Vereen sings a song that lets Pippa know that everything may seem to be crazy right now and everything may seem to be black. But it's okay, just keep going because you're on the right track. Listen to these lyrics, see if they don't have meaning to you. I know they do to me. And if nothing else, you can enjoy this presentation by one of Broadway's great performers at the height of his career. Pippin had Ben Vereen, You've Got Radio Free Mormon, All Things Considered. I think Pippin made out better in that equation. Anyway, that's all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air. You look frenzied, you look frazzled, peaked as any out, flushed and rushed and razzle-dazzled. Your lips, damp your scalp. Now I can see you're in a rut in disarray, and I'm not one to but in, but in fact, I'm saying. Trust a while, don't look blue, don't look back, you'll pull through in just a while, cause you're on the right track, on the right track, take it on the right track, Z-Sun, be flurried, flustered, keep those hopes aloft, keep cool as custard, trying hard, stepping soft, there's no trick to staying sensible, despite each call the sack, cause each step's indispensable when you're on. Well, spirits high, pulses low But what I've left behind looks trifling What's ahead looks black Am I doomed to spend my life a lingering on? Lingering on Just lingering on a lingering on Never, never, never! Easy, baby. You're on the right track.